Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 31 of History on Fire. This is going to be the finale of the two-part series on gladiators. If you want to support the podcast, or you hate ads, or both, feel free to check out a link that I put in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com to my Patreon page. So if you want to make monthly donation in any amount, that would be sweet. For $5 or more, you get episodes that are completely ad-free. $10 or more, you get episodes about a few days ahead of the release schedule, and so on and so forth. There are a few other perks. But in any case, if you want to check it out, that's great. Otherwise, if you do not mind ads, let me say thank you to a few folks who keep us in business. Number one, a thousand thank yous to Blue Apron, for sponsoring us for this whole year and for sending me amazing food. I understand that the first part affects you guys because you get more episodes that you may have anticipated or that I had scheduled originally. The second part really only affects my stomach, but it also affects my good mood and it helps me produce good podcasts. So indirectly, it's a good deal for you too. And also it may be a good deal for you to check them out, because really, I'm not kidding, I'm not saying it because they sponsor, they really make awesome food. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week, and customers can pick either 2, 3, or 4 recipes based on what best fits their schedule. They are treating History on Fire listener to $30 off on your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash onfire. So, I really can't recommend it enough. I, Savannah M., the producer of History on Fire, is just downright addicted to it. I'm well on my way to being there. I just like their food a whole lot. So, if you want to know what I'm raving about, go check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash onfire. Also, a big thank you to onnit.com o-n-n-i-t.com by the way while you're at it put a forward slash history so you can get an automatic discount on some of their products particularly their supplements i don't remember if they extend the discount to the workout gear and some of the other goodies i know it's on supplements for sure check them out they are great actually as a matter of fact funny that Right now, as soon as I finish recording, I will be going back online and putting my order for some supplies from Onnit because I really, really like their stuff. They have excellent supplements. I have plenty of their workout gear from kettlebell to 
steel maces, speed ropes, yoga mats, you name it. They have all sorts of great stuff. So check them out at onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. Also, big thank you to Datsusara, which has been the company that has been with me the longest from long before I started History on Fire. I have, I carry every single day, I carry some of their bags, either their backpacks or the computer bag. I, my wallet is a Datsusara wallet, all made with the highest grade amp, super high quality stuff. So if you don't need the wallets, bags or anything, then, well, you're out, then you don't need it. I'm not telling you to buy stuff you don't need. But if you are in the market for such things, check them out at dsgear.com. Also, they make, I forgot, martial arts uniforms that are really good. Some of the geese for jujitsu and things like that. So check them out. And also, I want to give a quick shout out to Never Tap Gear at nevertapgear.com. This guy sent me some really good quality knee braces because I love grappling, but really grappling is not the best friend of knees everywhere it's very easy to damage your knees well i mean for that matter any kind of athletic activities easy to damage your knees so these guys make good knee braces which now i'm wearing every single time i train check them out nevertapgear.com at the end of the episode uh, there will be more on how to support the show make sure it's a viable plus future plans for upcoming episode now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. In the first episode of this two-part series, we got the basics of the gladiatorial games out of the way. You know, all the who were the gladiators, the settings in which the gladiatorial fights took place, and all the other good stuff. Now it's time to dive a little deeper. The earlier part was just to establish a foundation, to make sure we are all clear about what the games look like, what life in gladiatorial schools was like, who, who sponsored the games and why. And... But the really interesting part about this series really begins now. This is where we get to speculate on why Romans love gladiatorial games so much. This is where we discuss the psychology of a society where death fights were the number one source of entertainment. But rather than being purely a chronological history in which I tell you what happens, we really here we're exploring a culture more than anything. And of course, as such, there's a part of this that is a lot more subjective. You know, it's more speculative in nature. It's, uh, it's easy to say what happened. Well, even that's not really always easy, but it's easier to say what happened than why it happened which is what we're going to be doing here. A good place to begin is the very weird paradox at the roots of the relationship between gladiators and Roman society. On the one hand, gladiators were the popular superstars of the Roman world. They attracted the degree of attention that the greatest professional athletes receive today. But on the other hand, they were also despised because of their low status. Many of them were prisoners of war, criminals or slaves, and even those who weren't and who had volunteered to become gladiators were still seen as inferior and low class. And the reason for this is simple. 
as I hinted in part one, the Romans considered being an entertainer a low-class profession, no matter how well you may be paid. You know, you could be ridiculously rich as an entertainer, you were still seen as low-class. The reason is because they saw entertainers as uh, servants to their audience. In their view, actors, athletes, and prostitutes basically all engage in the same business because they all provided a service for the entertainment of a paying customers by using their bodies. Author Catherine Edwards make the case that in ancient Rome, all individuals engaged in these professions were seen as, she used the word infamy, which can basically be translated as disreputables. The disreputables sound like a I don't know, Sylvester Stallone movies or something, but in any case. In Edward's analysis, disreputable were all those professions in which one's body was used for public spectacle and or for other people's pleasures. In Edward's own words, they live by providing sex, violence and laughter for the pleasure of the public. And their low status was such that they weren't allowed to speak on behalf of others in a court of law. They were really seen as, uh, you know, there's a really weird relationship because on on one hand, Romans really enjoyed their services and on the other hand, they saw them as really low class. Edwards adds, what made the infamous like slaves was that they too served the pleasures of others. They too had no dignity. Their bodies, too, were bought and sold. So as a result of this, the successful gladiators occupied the very strange position of being both ultra-famous stars and despised outcasts at the same time. The early church father Tertullian summed up this attitude in the sentence The art they glorify, the artist they disgrace. And adding more negative stigma on Gladiator were the writings of many Roman intellectuals who consider not just gladiators themselves, but the very idea of enjoying a gladiatorial show a low-status activity. In some way, this really shouldn't be surprising. This is, after all, what pompous intellectuals have always done. Put down popular pastimes as something that appeals to a vulgar taste. What better way is there for a wannabe intellectual to feel superior to the unwashed masses than put down their favorite passions? You know, many modern intellectuals today speak about TV shows, Hollywood movies, and pop culture with the same disdain as Roman intellectuals did in their day. This, however, definitely did not reflect the feelings of the majority of the population. No matter how much pedantic grumbling Rome's intellectuals could direct toward gladiatorial games, the fact remained that the vast majority loved them with a passion. And I don't just mean that people love being entertained by gladiators. Against everything we seem to have said so far, many Romans, including high-ranking aristocrats, were obsessed and fascinated with the gladiators themselves despite their low status. So talk about 
a weird contradiction here. In a society as class-conscious as Rome was, this was definitely an anomaly. You know, upper classes were not supposed to admire and love lower classes, and certainly not professional entertainers and slaves. So why did they? There's one theme that we will explore more fully a bit later, but that I need to at least mention now in order to answer the question, and that theme is the gladiator's bravery. In a culture like Rome that worshipped bravery, you know, they lived for bravery, fearlessness, and military virtues, those were their values, it was next to impossible not to admire gladiators whose entire existences were dedicated to embodying these values. Romans just could not help themselves when watching a man standing in front of thousands, facing the possibility of death without flinching. That just touched something deep within their core. And when I say that Romans were passionate about gladiators, I really don't mean in a calm and restrained kind of way. Think rock stars with adoring legions of groupies, including, most scandalous of all, even aristocratic women. Successful gladiators, in fact, became celebrities and sex symbols. In his critical book about the games, the church father Tertullian couldn't contain his disgust when he wrote, Men give them their souls, women their bodies too. There are some graffiti found in the gladiator's barracks at Pompeii that hint at this. They speak of, I'm going to quote, Celadus the Thracian, three times victor and three times crowned, who makes young women sigh. They speak of a crescens, the nocturnal nectar, which basically is the nocturnal retiarius. If you remember from part one, the retiarius is a type of gladiator that used the trident and the net. So these graffiti say, refer to this gladiator as the nocturnal retiarius of young women. You could translate this as he who captures in his net young ladies every night. There's another one of these graffiti speaking of thras, the heart throb of all the girls. Now maybe we could dismiss this as just some gladiators boasting if you weren't for a mountain of other evidence indicating the same conclusion. The ancient Roman author Cassius Dio tells that Messalina, the wife of Emperor Claudius, once saved a defeated gladiator because he was one of her lovers. And she wasn't the only empress to have a soft spot for gladiators. According to some sources, Faustina, the wife of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, was apparently so obsessed with a particular gladiator then she and her husband took some pretty extreme steps to quote-unquote cure her of her infatuation. The court's astrologers told her that the way to fix the problem was to have this gladiator killed, that Faustina should bathe in his blood, and then she should have sex with her husband. I'm hoping there was a shower in between the literal bloodbath and sex with her husband, but I suspect not. Supposedly this remedy cooled down her enthusiasm for gladiators. Yeah, right, no kidding. 
but that ancient authors wrote, after this, she, I quote, she brought into the world Commodus, who was more of a gladiator than a prince. Now, if the future emperor Commodus, if Commodus was indeed born from a sex session while his mom was covered in a dead gladiator's blood, you almost have to feel bad for him. I mean, even though he would grow up to be an awful emperor, the poor kid really never had a chance. This would go also a long way to explaining why Marcus Aurelius turned to Stoicism. I mean, clearly you need something to make you feel better about life after saving your marriage to your wife who's in love with a gladiator by having said gladiators slaughtered and then having sex with her while she's covered in his blood. Yeah, it seems like if anyone would need stoicism, that would be poor Marcus Aurelius. Well, probably the poor gladiator who got slaughtered too. I think he may need it even more. The Roman author Juvenile in his satire wrote of a senator's wife named Eppia, who abandoned her family to become the mistress of a gladiator. Juvenile wrote, Eppia, the senator's wife, accompanied a troop of gladiators to Pharos and the Nile. Oblivious of her home and husband and sister, she disregarded her fatherland and shamelessly deserted her waiting children. But what were the good looks and youthfulness that enthralled Eppia and set her on fire? What did she see in him to make her put up with being called the gladiator's groupie? After all, her darling Sergius had already started shaving his throat, and with his gashed arm had hopes of retirement. Besides, his face was really disfigured. There was a furrow chafed by his helmet, an enormous lamp right on his nose, and a nasty condition of a constantly weeping eye. But he was a gladiator, and that makes them all Adonises. These was what she set above her children, her homeland, her sister, and her husband. The sword is what they love. Juvenal's exact words in Latin are ferrum est quod amant. Ferrum est quod amant. It's the steel that they love. Juvenal and several other writers seem maddened by how attractive some gladiators were to women. In the passage quoted above, Juvenal goes out of his way to show that this particular gladiator wasn't even good-looking. But the very fact that he was a gladiator is what excited Appia. The author Petronius in his Satyricon wrote, Some women are hot about the absolute dregs. The arena gets them in heat. They look for something to love among the lowest of the low. People like Petronius, Juvenile, and several other authors couldn't come to terms with the fact that super-rich women from the nobility flocked to have sex with gladiators. Perhaps we may venture that the fact that it was frowned upon made it even more exciting. A romance with a famous gladiator offered not only a chance to have sex with one of the biggest celebrities in Rome, but also carried the aura of something scandalous and prohibited, which of course made the whole thing more thrilling. It's perhaps for these reasons that emperors like Augustus 
pass rules to make sure that only Vestal virgins would be allowed to sit up close at the game, while other aristocratic women had to sit as far away from gladiators as possible. And if some aristocratic women chose to be scandalous by becoming the lovers of gladiators, some aristocratic men took the ultra-scandalous step of becoming gladiators themselves. Apparently there were quite a few freeborn citizens, and even some noble ones, who chose the profession willingly. They would swear the oath and agree to be gladiators for a specific time frame, in exchange for the possibility of fame, fortune, and sex with lots of women. And there were even more cases of members of the elite who, while not ready to take the radical step of becoming gladiators, along with the resulting loss of status, they took the more moderate step to at least train with gladiators. Even a few emperors did it. Among those who practiced as gladiators were the emperors Caligula, Titus, Hadrian, Lucius Verus, Didius Julianus, Caracalla, Geta, sometimes pronounced Geta, and of course the bad guy in the film Gladiator, everyone's favorite villain, Commodus. Commodus, according to most reports, was addicted to the games. He would actually dress in a lion skin like the mythical Hercules, and would enter the arena to fight both as a gladiator and as a hunter in the Venatio. This disgusted the aristocracy, but was actually very appreciated by the common people. Now, we should qualify a little bit about Commodus fighting in the arena. When I say fight in the arena, take it with a grain of salt. All of his matches were clearly fixed, which is why A, he survived, and B, he could boast a 620 to 0 record. When Commodus fought real gladiators in the arena, he used wooden weapons and they used the flimsy canes. So they weren't real fights, you know. Commodus never fought against one with an actual sharp weapon. In training, he made gladiators use lead swords while he used iron. And in one occasion, apparently, a gladiator didn't take that well, and he threw aside his lead sword, he threw it on the ground, saying that the one Commodus carried was more than enough for both of them. And the report is that Commodus got fairly scared of being disarmed and killed, and so refused to train with this guy. In addition to offending the class-conscious sensibilities of other aristocrats, Commodus also upset some people who considered his fixed fights disgraceful, because they represented the very opposite of the bravery and fearlessness that characterized the gladiator spirit. They were a sad mockery of what being a real gladiator was all about. They were a spoiled kid's fantasy, you know, someone who wanted to wear the right clothes and go through the motions, but had no stomach for the real thing. So, you know, on one hand, these performances thrilled the lower classes. They thought it was funny, they thought it was cool that the guy was as passionate about the games as they were. But on the other hand, he turned what many people saw as this demonstration of bravery into some 
it's more like a theater act, you know, more like a pro wrestling match as opposed to a, <clears throat> an actual real fight. Let's now jump for a second to modern times. Because the strange paradoxical status of gladiators, this mixture of uh, condemnation and love, is not just a thing of the past. Much like in the ancient world, today paradox continues to surround the image of the gladiator in the works of many scholars, filmmakers, and even creators of ultra-violent video games who make money because of the popular fascination with gladiators but at the same time condemn ancient gladiatorial combat in the harshest terms. So that deserves to be unpacked a little bit. In his book, Death and Renewal, historian Keith Hopkins refers to gladiatorial violence as, I quote, completely alien to us and almost unimaginable. Similarly, in his text on the subject, Alan Baker writes, no one in their right mind would advocate the staging of gladiatorial contests in the present day. The sight of men and women slaying each other in the artificial battlefield of a blood-spattered arena would certainly not be tolerated. An average Roman citizen, however, would have looked on such a reaction with amusement and contempt. So These guys make a fairly strong case, but no historian is more vocal in his horrified reaction to ancient Rome's bloody pastimes in the arena than Michael Grant. After praising some of the great advances of Roman civilization, Grant quickly counterbalanced by expressing his disgust with its dreadful savageries, of which none was more horrible than gladiatorial combat, the setting of human beings to kill one another in public for entertainment, is by far the nastiest blood sport ever invented. Just a few lines later, he refers to gladiatorial combats as characterized by, I quote, an almost supreme degree of evil, and later he writes, the Romans' enjoyment of the sport was horrifyingly brutal and perverted. And just in case he had not made his point emphatically enough, he also adds, the constant recurrence of this unrestrained bloodthirstiness throughout long centuries is one of the most appalling manifestations of evil that the world has ever known. These scholars contrast the Roman passion for the blood and gore of gladiatorial games with modern sensibility that, according to them, finds such passion foreign and downright despicable. Grant takes the same idea one step further. Grant takes the same idea one step further. He writes, And the brutal and brutalizing atrocities gave added strength and urgency to the rise of Christianity and to its respect for individual life, which in the end did away with the gladiators altogether. And as he later writes in the same volume, the loss of passion for the gladiatorial games, I quote again from him, must be attributed to the spreading of Christian ideas. In other words, according to Grant, Christianity ushered a new type of sensitivity characterized by greater respect for human life, and this made the spectacle of bloody combat no longer appreciated. In Grant's analysis, the disappearance of gladiatorial combat after centuries of great popularity 
is a tale of Christian love triumphing over brutality. Grant's thesis has the merit of trying to explain how and why, in at least some circles, some modern audiences seem to find unjustified violence morally unpalatable. Unfortunately, it is the only merit it possesses, since it desperately tries to rewrite history to fit his agenda. The fact that Grant's thesis is historical fiction can be seen in Grant's own admission that gladiatorial shows did not end as soon as Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Even when eventually gladiatorial combat was discontinued, Christian emperors kept on sponsoring shows, featuring public executions and hunts resulting in the killings of hundreds of animals. A clear proof that Christians were not exactly immune to violent entertainment. And the notion of Christian humanitarianism extinguishing the passion for violence among most of its followers also clashes with centuries characterized by crusades, inquisitions, witch hunts, and a long series of religious wars. So if Grant's thesis possesses at least a grain of truth, the story is at minimum much more complicated than the way he presents it. Other historians suggest a different reason for Christian hostility toward gladiators. They say that the reason why Christianity did not view gladiatorial combat in a good light had less to do with an opposition to violent spectacles per se, and more with other factors. In his own monograph, uh, author Fick Major, I'm totally taking a guess on how to pronounce the name, I have no idea, argues that what upsets Christians was the fact that a gladiator could, I quote, bring about his own salvation through an amnesty from the emperor and the people. This runs completely counter to Christian teaching, which lays down that a person's salvation cannot depend on earthly powers, like the emperor and the people, but only on God. In other words, the reason why Christian emperors kept alive all the other bloody parts of the games, but not the gladiatorial fights, had nothing to do with an opposition to bloodshed. Because if that were the case, why keep sponsoring games featuring executions and massacres of animals? It really had to do with the fact that gladiators, in their quest to defeat the fear of death, relied purely on their own human strength and did not rely on God which represented competition for the Christian teachings, claiming that the only way which a human being could defeat death was through Christianity. Christian martyrs were supposed to be the ultimate role models for facing death with God's help. Gladiators challenged this notion. This, at least, is the interpretation of some scholars. You know, up to you to decide if it makes sense or not. Measure also notes that, along with fellow historian Roger Dunkel, that Christians also oppose gladiatorial games because of their association with pagan traditions. So that would be another reason. But back to the point raised by Michael Grant and others, is it really true that the modern world can't relate to the goriness of gladiatorial shows? Several authors disagree with this. Dunkel and Fick, for example, 
argue that perhaps the modern world needs less real blood and death for entertainment, because we get plenty of fictional blood and death in the form of TV shows, movies and video games. So maybe today's society is not any less fascinated with violence compared to ancient Rome. It's funny, by the way, that after I had recorded part one of the series on gladiators, I started listening to good old Dan Carlin had released the Hardcore History episode on, uh, um, on executions, on the relationship with violence and you know public spectacles centered on bloodshed and death. So it was funny how we are clearly thinking along the same lines in terms of subject matter and we ended up producing an episode that without knowing about what the other one was doing, we are really running a parallel track. So if you haven't checked it out and you have a strong stomach because Dan goes a little bit gorier than I do in these episodes, um, check out the latest episode of Hardcore History when he discusses themes that are very similar to what I'm raising here. I'm kind of... It's cool because we are we take them from different angles, so they are really more complementary than competitive. It's um, but it's funny how our twisted minds seem to have followed the same track. In any case, author Susanna Shadrake articulates this idea in particularly forceful fashion. I'll quote it's a long quote from Shadrake. She writes nowadays. The idea of two armed men fighting each other to the death as an entertainment and a spectacle for a cheering crowd is held up as an affront to the civilized mind. For a couple of seconds we can sign up to that belief before the modern equivalents to gladiatorial combat start to occur to us. Hypocrisy is an ancient vice still practiced today. Living as we do in a society where the most popular forms of mass entertainment use increasingly graphic images of bloody violence and pointless cruelty, we are in no position to assert our moral superiority. And then again in another passage she goes on to write, The truth is that we are just as fascinated by the prospect of two men locked in a life and death struggle as our ancient Roman counterparts in the Colosseum were. The insatiable public appetite for celluloid gore, celebrity mayhem, and graphic newsreel footage bears witness to that. The modern excuse that we are too civilized to make people fight to the death makes it sound as if there would be no spectators if such a match were actually staged, when in fact common sense tells us that tickets would fly out of the tout's hands. It must be better to look steadily in the face of the monster than to turn away and deny its existence. I love that sentence. I find it can be applied to so many things. It must be better to look steadily in the face of the monster than to turn away and deny its existence. It's a good one. But as she hints in this passage, the reality is that if you were legal to have death fights, tickets would probably be sold in a second. The idea that we are too civilized for that is a silly illusion. Think, for example, at the development of MMA in the early 1990s, you know, the sport of mixed martial arts. 
This may be interesting, particularly when you consider that both its fans and its detractors have consistently compared this sport to ancient Roman gladiatorial combat. Now, of course, there was a lot of hyperbole because nobody, this is not a death fight, this is more of a sport. But early on, the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the main organization that launched mixed martial arts, was not shy about marketing itself as a semi-gladiatorial event. Rather than trying to sell the UFC as a legitimate sport, UFC executives early on pushed the barbaric primal image, something escaped out of the pages of a John Milius movie. And incidentally, John Milius was the director and of the original Conan the Barbarian and produced the amazing Rome TV series for HBO. He was also the UFC first creative director. So initially they figured that gore and extreme violence work well for ancient Romans, so there was every reason to think it should work again. The fact that the referee wore a t-shirt on which was written the slogan there are no rules speaks volumes about these marketing tactics. But even more blunt than the referee t-shirt were the actual words of UFC executive Campbell McLaren went on ABC Good Morning America and explained the rules of the event by saying you can win by tap out, knock out or even death. This extreme marketing, however, was a double-edged sword. Self-appointed defenders of public morality quickly began thundering against the evil that the UFC represented in their eyes. And, as wannabe censors always do when faced with something they find distasteful, campaign to ban it. And moved by the notion that consenting adults should be free to do what they want as long as they don't affect others, they wanted to stamp out MMA off the face of the earth. After watching a couple of matches from the early editions of UFC, Republican Senator John McCain had become the leader of the anti-UFC movement. In his own words, some of this is so brutal that it is just nauseating. It appeals to the lowest common denominator in our society. This is something that I think there is no place for. Similarly, um, New York State Senator Roy Goodman had gone on record to speak of UFC as a, I quote, disgraceful, animalistic and disgusting contest, which can result in severe injuries to contestants and sets an abominable example for our youth. And despite all this, or perhaps because of all this, the UFC kept growing in popularity with each passing year. Eventually, UFC worked hard to clean up its image and be acknowledged as a legitimate sport. But even then, as my friend, author Sam Sheridan noted in his writings, he flirted with the image of MMA fighters as modern gladiators. The most explicit example of this was the introductory sequence that they used for quite a while, featuring a Roman gladiator that used to open all UFC pay-per-view events. This segment was a very obvious homage to Ridley Scott's movies Gladiator. You know, epic music furnished the soundtrack to images showing a Roman gladiator in battle gear touching the sand, which is an unforgettable reference for anyone who ever watched the movie Gladiator. 
picking up his weapons and walking up to the gates opening toward the arena. The UFC was far from the only MMA company pushing the gladiatorial image. The references to gladiators in the MMA world are never-ending. Take the name Gladiator Challenge, which is the name of the organization for which History on Fire editor and producer Savannah M. made their MMA debut. If you actually were to search for how many organizations contain references to gladiators or colosseums or things like that, you'd quickly run out of fingers to count on. The fact that the birth of the UFC raised wild enthusiasm as well as horrified reactions says a lot about the modern mindset. Similarly, what the contrast between the interpretations proposed by Grant and Shadrake, what that contrast point to is that modern audiences have a very strong opposite feelings toward violence and these feelings are characterized by both absolute repulsion and deep attraction. The fact that during a good part of the 20th century something like the motion picture production code which heavily censored sex and violence in movies could ever be could ever be passed could ever become law or the public outrage and attempted ban that followed the creation of the ultimate fighting championship these effects seem to confirm Grant's point that at least some segments of society are uncomfortable with the notion of violence as entertainment. But other facts point in a different direction. The Ultimate Fighting Championship enjoys high levels of worldwide popularity. The motion picture production code was eventually discontinued. And today millions of people watch shows such as, for example, if you want to stay in a Roman context, the Stars TV series Spartacus, shows that focus on explicit sexuality and extremely graphic gladiatorial violence, often shown in slow motion to make sure spectators don't miss any of the blood and gore. The killing of scores of enemies is almost invariably part of the plot of most video games. So all of these facts confirm Shadrake's argument that the idea of a shared moral revulsion toward violent entertainment by modern audiences is little more than wishful thinking. Violence still sells. Perhaps it is not as morally accepted as in Roman times, but it still sells. Moralists like Grant can condemn the public fascination for spectacle, sex and violence as primitive vices that need to be overcome, but unless they can offer something capable of attracting more attention than the quote-unquote vices they are criticizing, it's little more than empty preaching. As writer Walter Lippmann once said, unless the reformer can invent something which substitutes attractive virtues for attractive vices, he will fail. And still Lippmann commenting on the impossibility and dangers of trying to eliminate vices purely on moral grounds, he also added, it is dangerous, explosively dangerous, to toward them for any length of time. The Puritans try to choke the craving for pleasure in early New England. They had no theaters, no dances, no festivals. They burn witches instead. 
Now, does all of this mean that half of the world's population is horrified by violent entertainment while the other half is addicted to it? It's actually more complicated than that. In plenty of cases, these are the same people. This kind of schizophrenic attitude on the part of many in the audience is confirmed by many filmmakers' efforts to condemn the immorality of violent entertainment while at the same time making movies whose primary selling point is the very violent entertainment they condemn. In this way, it is possible to maintain the illusion that we are too civilized to enjoy unjustified violence, while at the same time satisfying the primal fascination for it. I'll call this section, where I take a couple of minutes to address this point, we'll call it having your violent cake and eating it too. So let's tackle it. Let's consider this classic scene from the movie Gladiator. After dispatching multiple opponents in gory fashion during his second appearance in the arena, Maximus, the lead character of the movie, does something that may strike us as rather odd. Instead of basking in the glory of the crowd cheering him on, he turns on them. He throws his sword in the stand and delivers the famous line, are you not entertained? Is it, are you not entertained? Is it not why you are here? And then he throws down his second sword and spits on the sand of the arena. What exactly has just happened here? Why a successful gladiator who just won a bout is attacking the very crowd that loves him? Why is the lead character of a movie banking on the appeal of the gladiators? Why is he expressing disgust toward the audience because, because they enjoy watching gladiators? All of this seems kind of strange. Far from being an anomaly, this seemingly strange scene is actually quite representative of the way Hollywood and even the video game industry has treated the entire gladiator genre. The answer to the riddle of this scene and to the riddle of Hollywood's curious approach to gladiators, is to be found precisely in the schizophrenic battle just mentioned at the beginning of this section. Both gladiatorial and martial art films have to struggle with morality quite a bit. Their emphasis on ritualized combat in front of an audience, in fact, seems to create a space for violence that, in Friedrich Nietzsche's terms, is beyond good and evil. The violence of a gladiatorial combat, or the violence of two martial artists competing in a tournament, is not couched in self-defense or other understandable concerns. The participants are therefore not engaging in violence for a quote-unquote good reason, nor for the matter are they engaging in violence for a recognizably bad reason, such as robbery, murder, rape, and so on and so forth. They confuse our sense of morality by engaging in violence in a ritual space that appears to be removed from the realm of good and evil. So in modern times, how can filmmakers sell gladiatorial games while at the same time condemning what they present as gratuitous violence. In good part of the 20th century, several fields did this by couching this violence as part of Christian morality tales. 
Many movies portray the heroic Christians being forced to fight in the arena by evil Roman emperors. This formula is at the heart of the paradox I keep referring to. Michael Wood, in his book America in the Movies, argues that 1950s films for Christ- were, you know, on one hand presenting Christian morality play, but visually they celebrated the Roman Empire. Wood is quoted as saying, The great scenes in these films, the reasons for our being in the cinema at all, the triumphs, the orgies, the gladiatorial games, all belong to the oppressors. The palaces, the customs, the pomp are all theirs. It is the Romans who provide the circuses, who give us a Rome to be godly born. It is Nero and the pharaohs who throw the parties with all the dancing girls. What he's saying, basically, is that, according to Wood, what sells tickets is the very sex and violence that the Christian apics will condemn as Roman depravities. The same Romans will force the heroes of the film to participate in their obscene pastimes, but the Christian moral message will give us a comforting excuse for enjoying a movie about such themes without having to admit why we're really watching. If audiences were not afraid to appear immoral and uncivilized, the religious message may not be needed. But since vast numbers of people can't openly acknowledge that they enjoy sex and violence, the religious moral tale offers a way to ever violent cake and eating it too. Another professor of classics, Martin Winkler, reinforces the same by now familiar point by writing, Torture and death are not what good people should enjoy, but when they are presented as part of uplifting moral lessons about the evils of paganism and the goodness of the righteous, they become not only acceptable but even desirable to watch. As Winkler indicated in the previous quote, in polite societies considered unseemly, to enjoy a form of entertainment featuring copious amounts of death. And yet, in relatively recent times, Christian audiences enthusiastically received a movie that not only featured these disturbing elements, but one that was actually centered on them. The one I'm referring to is Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, a film featuring so much blood and gore that has prompted a critic to dub it two-hour and six-minute snuff movie, and has similarly inspired the renowned critic Roger Tebert to write, the movie's 126 minutes long, and I would guess that at least 100 of those minutes, maybe more, are concerned specifically and graphically with the details of the torture and death of Jesus. This is the most violent movie I've ever seen. But what about the many gladiatorial movies in which Christianity plays virtually no role? How did the filmmakers, without turning to Christianity, reconcile the bloody behavior of the lead characters fighting in the arena with a sense of morality indicating that said character are not simply violent bullies? How can the audience sympathize with a character participating in a blood sport and killing scores of people in the process? The evil Romans come to the rescue again, offering a solution to this dilemma. It was they who enslaved some poor sympathetic character 
and forced him to join their murderous games. In other words, the heroes of the tale are gladiators against their will, a fact that allowed the film to focus on gladiatorial combat without having to endorse it. These characteristics of cinematic gladiators have become so stereotypical as to spread even to gladiators in video games. I remember during a particular Christmas I was super sick with the flu, and having zero energy for anything else, I spent a week or two playing all day long the 2005 video game Shadow of Rome. The game begins with the main character being forced into becoming a gladiator against his own natural inclinations. I mean, were there any doubts? It's the classic theme. And the rest of the game runs in paradoxical fashion. You know, the player is required to literally rip apart fellow gladiators in the arena in the course of extremely graphic fights. But the killings are regularly punctuated by verbal condemnations of the very violence on which the game is based. At one point in the game, a gladiator tells a friend, the Romans call us animals, but you should see the look in the eyes of the audience when we fight. And in another equally charged moment, the lead character addresses the audience directly after killing an opponent. And quoting almost directly from Maximo's speech in Gladiator, he asks, Are you satisfied? Is it really so enjoyable watching men murder each other like animals? Now, the answer to this question is obviously a resounding yes. Otherwise, the video game itself would not sell, since it is based almost entirely on the appeal of graphic violence. But when even video games built on blood and gore feel the need to express moral condemnation of gladiatorial violence, it means that this weird love-hate relationship with violence has really become a cultural cliché here. Same thing happens with martial arts movies. You know, If martial arts films don't condemn the very violence on which they are based, they will be accused of glorifying violence and the lead characters of the films will appear as bullies rather than heroes. So this idea of the hero being forced into unleashing his violent skills, despite his high sense of morality, is a staple of the martial art movie genre, just as much as it is a staple in the portrayal of gladiators in cinema. Think about Bruce Lee restraining himself time and time again until the bad guys in the movies push past the point when everyone in the audience is ready to justifying him for kicking ass. An exception to this rule, and sorry if I hammer a little bit more on movies, but they really they really address the point of our weird modern relationship with violence and how they make us both similar and different from ancient Romans. So allow me for a little bit more to dive into this, and then I swear I'll go back to just purely ancient times, not just a modern representation of ancient times. An exception to the rule that I just laid for a while is found in the main gladiatorial scene depicted in what's probably my favorite TV series of all times, Rome, produced by HBO between 2005 and 2007. This scene somewhat deviates from this pattern, and it's worth chatting about for a minute. The hero of the story, Titus Pullo, 
one of my all-time favorite TV characters, is condemned to die as a damnatus in the arena. But in this case, his punishment is hardly unfair. The reason why he's sentenced to fight in the arena doesn't look particularly unfair, really. The law has caught up with him because of his days as a hired assassin. After a bout of opium smoking, Pullo is arrested because he has become a hitman for hire and got busted for murder. When his lawyer tries to convince Pullo to reveal who commissioned him the murder in the hope of receiving a reduced sentence, Pullo refuses to betray his gangster employer, said, Can't help you, sorry, give my word, is his reply. His lawyer then tries desperately to build some type of defense. Since his guilt is beyond doubt, uh, the lawyer is looking for some mitigating circumstances. Perhaps, the lawyer argues, the judges may be willing to spare you if you can provide a compelling reason. Uh, Maybe you turn to crime to help a sick relative or a friend in need. Typical screenwriters would answer this question by providing some noble explanation for the hero's seemingly immoral behavior. Perhaps being forced into crime for the sake of crying widows and orphans or some other suitable reason. But when asked what he needed money for, Pullo's answer is as usual disarming. He says, I needed money for wine. I needed money for wine? What heroic cinematic gladiator is a worse excuse for engaging in violence? Unlike the injustice that typically characterizes the sentence into the arena of most movie gladiators, Pullo's sentence seems hardly surprising. I mean, if anybody deserves being thrown in the arena, it's Titus Pullo. Whereas almost all movies are about poor, innocent heroes unfairly forced into becoming gladiators, Pullo is a convicted murderer. He doesn't become a gladiator due to abuse of power by an evil Roman tyrant. He, he got thrown into the arena as the inevitable consequence of his actions. And once we finally get to Pullo's entrance in the arena, the differences with the gladiatorial experience in other movies is reinforced. In the majority of cases, the films show us gladiators fighting in sumptuous arena in the style of the Colosseum, in front of rich, evil, upper-class Romans who stand in contrast to the virtuous slaves fighting in the sand. Here instead, the arena is a very small-scale venue, made of a few lines of benches assembled in the middle of a square. Conspicuously absent is the figure of an emperor, which would be historically inaccurate anyway, since Rome takes place at the end of the Roman of the Republican period, not yet the Empire. We don't see any upper class Romans there to symbolize the depravity of the upper classes paying to see the lower classes shed blood. The people cheering in the audience are dirty, poorly dressed, and definitely lower class. At the beginning of the scene, the crowd is firmly set against Pullo and is very much looking forward to seeing him be killed. But unlike in the case of the other gladiatorial films that we normally watch, the way Pullo wins the support of the crowd has preciously little to do with issues of morality, innocence or guilt. 
when eventually the audience turns to cheering for Pollo, rather than clamoring for his death. It's not because of his mercifulness toward defeated opponents, because of the nobility of his cause or in recognition of how he was wrongly condemned. No, the reason why they begin to love him is only because he fights like a demon out of hell against overwhelming odds by killing seven of his executioners sent to dispatch him and demonstrates a nearly insane degree of bravery in the face of death. Pullo seems to be exactly what Friedrich Nietzsche had in mind when, in a chapter of his Das Spoke Zarathustra, appropriately entitled War and Warriors, Nietzsche offers a rather unusual breakdown on the nature of goodness. Here Nietzsche answers the question, what is good, with a blunt, to be brave is good. The Roman audience cheering for Pullo clearly would agree with Nietzsche. This Nietzsche vibe that shows up in the Rome TV series also shows up in one of my other favorite movies. This is the 1982 Conan the Barbarian, also directed by Milius, same guy who was part of the UFC, who was part of the Rome HBO production, was the director of the original Conan. There's that famous scene where, right before battle, Conan is praying and he says, no one will remember... Uh, he, he's actually, this is hilarious, you wrote a quote. He, um, he starts praying addressing his god, Krom. And he say, no one, he prayed addressing Krom. Not even you will remember if we were good men or bad, why we fought or how we died. All that matters is that today, two stood against many. That's what's important. Valor pleases you, Krom. So grant me this one request. Grant me revenge. That's essentially what we're talking about here. It's the same thing at Pullo. By the way, there's a, on this Conan quote, there's a hilarious video that we put on YouTube. I'll put a link in the episode notes. We, a year or two ago, we did this video with my daughter reciting some of the most badass lines from movie history all while dressed in her cutesy princess dresses and delivering this. So this one particular, you know, Valor praises you, Chrome, so grant me one request, grant me revenge, is one of the lines she delivered. It's pretty funny. In any case, now that we have gone down the rabbit hole of this detour into film representation of gladiators, let's go back to the original point. What is the reason for the fascination, both in ancient times and today, for gladiators. It's too easy to dismiss it just as sadistic voyeurism, the way many scholars do. You know, if you read a lot of books on gladiators, that's all they say. George Veal is quoted as saying that volunteers, the people who volunteer to become gladiators, were, I quote, attracted by a taste for killing, sadism, suicidal compulsion, and morbid death wish. Come on, that's really the best explanation you can come up with? Michael Grant is even more extreme. He compares gladiatorial games to the Nazi Holocaust. Um, So yeah, most historians don't offer much of a good rational explanation for this fascination for gladiators. 
most of them write with self-righteous moral indignation, just condemning it and that's it. Which, on one hand, it's cheap, since there are not exactly too many defenders of gladiatorial combat today, so it's a little easy. And also it's hypocritical, since their books are bought by people fascinated with gladiators. So they do that same, uh, you know, violent cake and eating it too. Now, this, by the way, is not to say that sadistic voyeurism wasn't part of the story, because of course it was. What I'm saying is that it wasn't the whole story, that there was more to it. Gladiatorial fights attracted people for many different reasons. Dismissing it only as the product of bloodlust and sadism is way too simplistic. So what I like to do today is to try to offer you something a bit more interesting than the old uh, can you believe how crazy and bloodthirsty the Romans were? So stick with me a bit more and we'll explore some of the possibly deeper reasons for why gladiators attracted ancient Romans and still attract us today. I'll save for last the interpretation that intrigues me the most. But let me warm you up with a few other reasons for both ancient and modern attraction to gladiators. The first one, the first one is the closest I can come up with to this condemnation of uh, the sadism of ancient Roman society. So this first one expands a little on the ideas that were, the games were about that. Basically, what several scholars have remarked is that the games were a reflection of Roman society at large, which was brutally harsh. Keith Hopkins wrote, Rome was a cruel society. Brutality was built into its culture, in private life as well as in public shows. The tone was set by military discipline and by slavery, to say nothing of wide-ranging paternal powers. What Hopkins is alluding to when he says wide-ranging paternal powers is the fact that Roman fathers could legally beat their kids to death as part of disciplining them. In school, teachers regularly beat their students. Their legal system encouraged very harsh punishments, even for relatively minor infractions. So clearly, a society in which even the elite may regularly be on the receiving end of beatings while growing up as kids. Never mind a society on a first-name basis with the violence that characterizes slavery. Was inevitably an ultra-violent society. Life in Rome was cheap and was harsh. Ficmeja writes, It is misleading to study the gladiator fights as if they were an isolated phenomenon, a dark page in the otherwise illustrious history of Rome. Roman society was soaked in violence. Its presence could be felt everywhere. Rome had achieved greatness by winning wars through excessive violence. Similarly, author J.P. Toner adds, To us, violence has negative moral implications, but for the Romans it did not. Violence, whether we like it or not, is a common form of collective or individual expression. In fact, violence was not a byproduct or a disagreeable instrument. It was the empire itself. It represented an, an ambiguous statement of power. So to some degree, 
yes, we can say that a day at the games contributed even further to foster a culture of violence. Consider, for example, that someone like Commodus, who's, you know, the Emperor Commodus, who's often mentioned as the poster boy for what a cruel emperor looks like. When he was a kid, he cried when he saw criminals tossed to the beasts. You know, not everyone starts out as a bloodthirsty tyrant. But a person can definitely be molded into one. So the idea here is that in a culture in which violence was an everyday thing, clearly lots of people carried plenty of anger, and the games offered a chance for vicarious expression of aggression and rage. They functioned as a cathartic safety valve for common frustrations. A different, more optimistic argument is made by some who suggest the games were a celebration of Rome's success. In this other interpretation, in the arena, the Romans gathered animals from all the lands they had conquered and slaughtered them there. They similarly watched POWs from all of Rome's campaigns fight as gladiators. So in some ways, the game reflected the tradition of triumphs, for Roman generals. You know, in a triumph, they would bring banners listing all the cities, people, and wealth that a general had conquered. They would shoot paintings showing the key moments of the campaign. There were both nobility, princesses, princes. They were paraded as hostages, all dressed in their native clothing. The more exotic the their appearance and clothing, the more it showed how far Rome had conquered. And that's a similar pattern as showing all these gladiators from different nationalities, all these animals from different places. You know, the games do the same thing. They show this is, we conquered all of them. They are now our servants for our entertainment. So according to this interpretation, the games were about celebrating the success of Roman militarism. Now, speaking of militarism, this idea that the passion for the games was somewhat connected to Rome's military tradition is popular even without the celebratory overtone I just mentioned. Let's consider what a few scholars have to say. Keith Hopkins wrote, Public executions of prisoners helped inculcate valor and fear in the men, women, and children left at home. Children learned a lesson about what happened to soldiers who were defeated. These were the rituals which helped maintain an atmosphere of violence, even in peace. Bloodshed and slaughter joined military glory and conquest as central elements in Roman culture. And he later adds, the popularity of gladiatorial shows was a byproduct of war, discipline, and death. Rome was a militaristic society. Author J.P. Toner seems to agree. He writes, The games symbolized the Roman struggle and victory. They were a reenactment and a rehearsal of what Romans had to do, feel, and be if their success was to continue. Similarly, author Alan Baker, it was the ability to kill an enemy single-handedly upon which Rome depended for the maintenance of its empire. 
And author Susanna Shadrick basically agrees with this, but adds that much of this was tied to Rome's defeat at Hannibal's hands at Cannes. She writes, after 216 BC, Rome wanted to see gladiators reenacting the stark military imperatives exposed by Cannes, facing death without flinching. And she later continues, since most of the people would never see actual warfare, they needed to see it in the most public of spaces, the arena, where the gladiator had the ritual task of demonstrating to the spectators the military qualities that would ensure Rome was never defeated again. So that's another interpretation right there. Another one, and keep in mind, these interpretations are not mutually exclusive. Another one is the idea that the games were an extension of politics. As Hopkins wrote, gladiatorial shows were political theater. These applied in a few ways. On one level, the games were a tool for the games were a tool for politicians to gain popularity. You know, sponsoring the games was the quickest way to get votes. We have already noted, for example, in part one about Julius Caesar spending enormous amounts of money on gladiators in order to gain an edge in the popularity contest with his immediate rivals. But in addition to this, there's another political dimension to the games. Many historians have argued that the games were an expedient used by Roman politicians to distract the lower classes from questions of social justice. Roland Augue wrote that the games help citizens forget their mediocre lives and lack of political power. The idea was that the more they scream at the games, the less of a voice they would carry in popular assemblies. I think that's almost a word-by-word quote from Augue, if I remember correctly. The games in this analysis were a tool to keep popular malcontent down and the plebs were pacified in this way. Now, even today, you have people like Noam Chomsky, for example, argues the same thing about the modern passion for sports. He considered it as a distraction from the issues that really matters. In the Roman version, the elite would hand out free bread and games, as Juvenal famously put it, to keep everyone with their belly full and suitably entertained so that they could keep their hold on power. Commenting on this state of things, author and scholar Monica Sirino wrote how, through the games, and I quote, the mindless mob is diverted into a blight state of numbness oblivious to the real struggles for control and dominance going on upstairs in the marble corporate boxes. So this view of the games as an elaborate political tool is certainly a good attempt by historians as well as filmmakers to emphasize the implications of gladiators among ancient Roma. And, you know, all of that may be true, but it really doesn't tell us why the masses of people enjoyed the show so much, nor does it answer the question of why modern audiences feel the same way today. And the same can be said of some of the other arguments raised above. So enough dancing around with this. 
Without further ado, let's address the one interpretation of the games that intrigues me the most. Let me warn you that this interpretation of the collective fascination for the figure of the gladiator is far from typical. Susanna Shadrake and Carlin Barton are the authors whose ideas are closest to mine on this. So I'm going to borrow some of their concept and we'll run with it. As we've seen earlier, most scholars unfailingly speak of gladiators as just poor victims of Roman sadism. I've already indicated I don't completely reject this idea. I mean, I agree that bloodthirst certainly played a role in the games. There's no argument there. But if we stop here, how do we explain the large percentage of volunteer gladiators during imperial times? How was it possible for elite Romans to end up admiring and even falling in love with people at the bottom of the social pyramid? Why did some of them even give up all their privileges to become gladiators themselves? As Barton questions in the book uh, The Sorrows of the Ancient Romans, she says, What was it that drew free men to discard community, status, dignity, and power to fight in the arena, in the space allotted to the ruined and condemned? And she later added, We can hear only his scream, his meaning the gladiator, we can hear only his scream. We cannot hear the song within the sorrow. So what we're going to do in this final stretch of this episode is to find that song. What is that song within the sorrow that Barton is talking about? Let's forget gladiators for a second. Let's think about modern sports. It probably wouldn't be so crazy to suggest that many people watch sports to be inspired by other individuals managing to do something great while under pressure. Writing about what he calls elevation, psychologist Jonathan Haidt said, powerful moments of elevation sometimes seem to push a mental reset button, wiping out feelings of cynicism and replacing them with feelings of hope, love and optimism, and a sense of moral inspiration. And these kind of feelings are precisely what can be triggered by particularly epic moments in sports, which goes a long way toward explaining why sport fans get so emotionally invested in the games. MMA writer Jake Rosson makes the tie between hate's idea of elevation and sports, well, combat sports in particular, a direct one. He wrote, Elevation was later adopted by the film critic Roger Tebert, who described having real residual effects after viewing a film that struck emotional chords with him. If fiction can accomplish this, it's hardly a stretch to consider how much more impactful the real drama of a prize fight can be. While some people may prefer or even need the orchestra and editing that accompanies a rocky climax, Others put more weight on the outcome of two actual human beings. Watching someone progress through the years, finally succeeding in the barest of sports, is uplifting. We can live vicariously through that moment, or use it to fuel what we desire in life. 
In that same article, Ebert brought the conversation out of movies and into sports. By describing his feeling after watching Michael Jordan in the 1997 NBA Finals. Clouded by food poisoning, Jordan played a terrific game and was then virtually dragged off the court. Said Ebert, I wasn't moved by the victory. That's only basketball. I was moved by his bravery. So, I was moved by his bravery. Now we're getting to something. Now we're touching what I think this whole thing is going to be about. I mean, even the thing that, another one of the quotes I just read, you know, when he said, we can live vicariously through that moment or use it to fuel what we desire in life. I'm intrigued with that. Use it to fuel what we desire in life. How is it that being a spectator at an event can create the fuel to help you in life? Well, let's go find out. Author Sam Sheridan similarly echoes this theme when he writes, We come to the fights to see that struggle as much as great technique. We want to see heart on display. We want a chance to see real courage. And in another passage he writes, Watching the crowd react and surge to its feet, I can see this isn't just a fight. It's a celebration of courage. The crowd lives vicariously through the fighters. The crowd has some kind of cathartic experience through the ordeal of the fighters. So yes, the notion that gladiatorial fights were a spectacle celebrating bravery may not have been true for all spectators. I'm sure many came only to be entertained, not inspired. Many just wanted to see some blood with the same morbid curiosity that people normally reserve for car wrecks on the freeway. I get that. I'm not denying the obvious. But the same can be said about modern combat sports. You know, plenty of people are searching for cheap thrills. But this doesn't mean that others aren't looking for something else. So I don't think it is crazy to say that on some level and for some people, their passion for gladiators stem from a need to be inspired. Let's break this down further. What does it mean, inspired? How exactly? By virtue of their profession, gladiators stepped on the sand in front of thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of screaming spectators. This already takes guts. But what takes a lot more guts is the fact that their trade was engaging in potentially lethal fights. Gladiators stared at death in the face every time they stepped in the arena. Ancient Roman author Quintilian wrote that men in the audience cared less on whether a gladiator displayed flawless technique than about how bravely they approached the fight. As Carlin Barton writes, the crucial element in the elevation of the gladiator was less a victory than a contest that tested the gladiator's fierce amor mortis. The gladiator's struggle was required to be a desperate one in order to gain him honor. In other words, what made a great gladiator was the ability to face nearly hopeless circumstances with integrity and resolve. It's completely natural to be scared of physical harm and death, which is why someone 
completely unfazed when facing death, would provide a model of heroic behavior to anyone witnessing it. I'm going to go off script here. Um, by the way, when I say off script, it's not that I write out History on Fire episodes beforehand. I have pretty detailed notes, but you know, then I kind of run with my notes and make it a little more spontaneous. But in this case, really spontaneous, because something that just came to my mind as I'm recording that is really not even in my notes. I think of the example of this one MMA fighter, uh, Anson Inoue, who used to fight in uh, Pride Championship in Japan. And it was interesting because Anson used uh, basically the worst possible strategy for his fights, Wars, if you care about winning, which, you know, most people in a sport care about winning. But that's not the way Inoue approached the fight. That was not... I mean, winning great, sure, it's nice if you win, but that really wasn't the purpose for him. What he cared about was to use the fights to test himself, to test his guts, to test his bravery, to grow as a human being by challenging something that would scare the hell out of him. So if he was going to go against the best striker there was, Inoue wouldn't do the smart thing, which would be try to take the fight to the ground, trying to take the fight to a place where the greatest striker is not going to be as effective. Inoue would stand right in front of this top-notch striker and trade blows with them, do exactly what the striker would want. Why? Because that scared him. He wasn't scared of taking him down. He wasn't scared of grappling with this guy. He was scared of standing there and trading blows, which is why he wanted to do it. Because he wasn't there to play safe. He was there to get that experience that you only get where you are terrified. And for him, the whole his whole MLA career wasn't really about winning or losing. It was about facing something that would make his blood freeze in his veins. And, and be able to stand there and be able to do it. And, you know, when everything in your ears is telling you, is screaming to run away, what are you doing? Don't do this. To go and face your fear in the most literal and dramatic way possible. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Now, the playwright Terence, ancient Roman author, once used in a play the phrase gladiatorio animo, which can be translated as with the spirit of a gladiator. What he meant by with the spirit of a gladiator was very much what Inoue was about, was very much this concept, the concept of facing life without hope or fear. Most people go through life ruled by their fears and spurred on by their hopes. But the spirit of a gladiator is an extreme existential state of being. It comes from the realization that no matter how we may play it safe, no matter how careful we are, ultimately our fears will materialize and the universe will open its giant fangs and devour us. As a Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca put it, you must die erect and invincible. What difference will it make if you gain a few more days or years? We are born into a world in which no quarter is given. Now eventually, sickness, old age and death find everyone. 
in this sense, the very existential conditions of life give perfect reasons to make us feel hopeless. But this is why the gladiator spirit was such a powerful thing in the eyes of people like Terence. Rusty Burke, the editor of an anthology of Robert E. Howard's work, Robert E. Howard was, among other things, the author of and creator of the character of Conan the Barbarian. He hits this point very well in an interview discussing what made Conan such a powerful character. He said, The impermanence of man's achievements in the face of an uncaring cosmos is a constant refrain throughout Howard's work. But one of the things most critics notice is that Howard's characters, even when they recognize the futility of the struggle, still refuse to give up. Conan's story is not that of a boy who sets out on a quest to fulfill some noble destiny, as in the story of young Arthur or Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, nor to find some grail, but it's the story of a man who recognizes that there is no inherent meaning in the world, that we make of ourselves what we can, and we seize as opportunities to become what he wishes to become. This is the spirit of a gladiator in a nutshell. Realizing that ultimately there is no future, and everything eventually turns to dust, the gladiator fearlessly lived 100% in the present moment. If you'll forgive me a very long quote, I'll read you a passage from something that I wrote on this very topic in uh, my latest book uh, called Not Afraid. So here I go. A clue to Seneca's thinking is to be found in this beautiful sentence born from his pen, or whatever it is that ancient Romans used to write. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. Something really powerful is in these words. In Seneca's worldview, gladiators were stoic philosophers more skilled at expressing themselves through sweat and muscles than with words. But this didn't make their example less meaningful. Gladiatorial fights to Seneca were a form of stoicism in action. The experience of gladiators, after all, was a particularly dramatic version of the human experience at large. Gladiators entered a world where softness and pity were foreign concept. The vow that all gladiators had to take was to be willing to be burned, bound, beaten and killed by the sword, which means that gladiators were in no position to harbor any illusions about the future. Regular human beings can afford to keep the thought of death at bay and continue living their lives as if they were going to last forever. This is clearly not the case, but the lack of an immediate threat is fertilizer for delusions. By virtue of their profession, gladiators inhabited a mental space without any room for thoughts of tomorrow. In order to enter the arena in the best possible frame of mind, despite the possibility of death looming large, they had to let go of any attachments and be completely immersed in the present. 
for a gladiator being ready to die at a moment's notice was a way of life. That's the essence of Bushido right there, as the Hagakure indicates. A samurai who is not prepared to die at any moment will inevitably die an unbecoming death. The gladiator, like a samurai, lives with death as his companion any time he drew breath. Each moment he still walked the earth was a gift from the gods, since any expectation of long-term survival hung by a thread. The constant reminder that each day could be their last put gladiators in a unique frame of mind. What ancient Romans call gladiatorio animo, the gladiator spirit, was the defiant power of someone who had lost any concern for status and profit, who could fight like a man possessed precisely because he was bound to no past or future, someone who had long abandoned hope and fear. The awareness that he would lose everything, and that he couldn't save himself or anyone else, injected the gladiator with the power of the damned. Without any thought of self-preservation left, the gladiator was free to fight for the joy of fighting, regardless of the outcome. By embracing death in the course of an epic fight, the gladiator redeemed himself from the powerless inherent in this condition. Here was the most powerless of men going to meet his fate, not like a victim, but with a sword in hand and a smile on his face. No one lives forever, the gladiator would say, but for now, to paraphrase the words of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, let's live in such a way that when death comes, even the reaper cries. When stripped of all the pomp and spectacle, the essence of the gladiatorial games was found in learning how to laugh in the face of death. It wasn't simply a matter of winning fights. It was about refusing to let hopelessness crush your spirit. In doing battle to the very doorstep of death, the gladiator taught everyone a lesson about how to die and how to live. Seen in this light, it becomes easy to understand what Seneca saw in gladiators. The gladiator's ability to stand proud in the presence of hopelessness and annihilation, his drive to remain undefeated even when victory was no longer a possibility, was exactly what Seneca had been writing all along. Gladiators embodied the foundations of stoicism in their every gesture. The only difference between life in the arena and life outside of it was time. The latter usually lasted longer, but the outcome was the same. Death awaited all, inside and outside the games. A scholar Carlin Barton wrote, The universe is an arena when there, where there is no misho, no discharge, no hope for mercy or deliverance. That's what the Latin term missio, or missio, depending how you want to pronounce it, uh, it, it refers to. It refers to a term that um, was when the emperor or the editor of the game would uh, redeem you, but would let you live, even though you may have lost the fight. So continuing on with this quote. So what the gladiator did was face, in a particularly dramatic ritualized context, the same dark terror that everyone at some point has to face. 
Seneca himself would deal with it, courtesy of an invitation to kill himself by the Emperor Nero, who suspected Seneca of conspiring against him. Unfortunately for Seneca, Nero's invitation was not the kind of offer you could refuse. And so Seneca had to open his own veins and soak in a warm bath until he died. But even the 99% of human beings who are not sentenced to fight in the arena or ordered by an evil emperor to slice and dice themselves ultimately have to deal with the same dynamics. Coming to terms with one's mortality is on everyone's agenda eventually. And again here goes Seneca. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. Unless one grapples with the greatest human fear of all, the fear of annihilation, one will always be slave to one's fears. This fear will stoke them throughout their entire lives, holding them back and inhibiting their ability to live fully. The stoic attitude didn't promise to make the problem go away and remove death from the horizon. What it encouraged instead was the forging of a spirit that can enjoy every second of a mortal life despite the knowledge that each passing second brings us closer to our demise. Okay, that was a monstrously long passage, but it captures many of my thoughts about this topic. You know, as I was putting together the notes for this, I realized, hey, I kind of wrote about this already in the book. Let me pull that out. And believe it or not, this is actually the short version of the quote. The, that passage keeps going and going. But what gladiators did was provide an example, you know, this idea that I just mentioned, the, the idea of an ex- somebody who can laugh in the face of death. As Barton puts it, to become a gladiator was to embrace with a vengeance cosmic cruelty. You know, being able to find a way to enjoy oneself, even in the harshest of circumstances, is not a small talent. And the most respected gladiators were the ones who not only faced the possibility of death, but even enjoyed the battle itself. Again, Barton, joy is the victim's revolt and revenge against dishonor and powerlessness. I love that. This is the idea that joy is the victim's revolt against powerlessness is beautiful. It's a great concept. And this is what won the admiration, even of stern intellectual like Cicero or Cicero, or you want to pronounce it, and Pliny the Younger. The Roman Empire literally depended on the ability of its citizens to face death without flinching. And even for those many Romans who would never see service in the legions, death was everywhere. Not only because eventually all humans have to deal with death, but because in ancient Rome this was even more so. Some scholars have suggested that nearly 30% of all Roman babies died within their first year. The average life expectancy wasn't particularly high. So the gladiatorial games were a master course in Stoic philosophy. They taught a lesson about heroism when confronted with suffering, with the unfairness of the universe and with death. 
Yes, they may have been a blood sport, catering to the sadism of many spectators. But here I'm inviting you to at least consider that they were simultaneously a celebration of bravery and a celebration of the defiance of the human spirit. Thank you to all of you for listening one, that's always appreciated, for writing reviews on iTunes, that's also very appreciated. Big, big thank you to all of you who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link, helps a bunch. Thank you to everyone who has signed up on Patreon, there's a link in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. If you are interested, check it out, it definitely helps out the podcast. Speaking of which, thank you to my biggest patron, Mark Blanchett, for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level. The prize for the $50 level, among a few other perks, is to have your name horribly mispronounced by yours truly with an Italian accent. Having said that, I would like to say thank you to some of the sponsors for the show. Blue Apron. Blue Apron is sponsoring us for the entire year. And, you know, you have heard me raving about them. Really, honestly, if you live in the United States, check them out. You don't have to sign up for some long commitment or something. Just check out if the food they make is suit your needs. I really love the quality. They are not particularly hard to make. Even I am not the greatest. I'm not too bad in the kitchen, but I'm not the greatest chef on the planet. And uh, I can manage Blue Apron fairly decently, and the results is always surprises me because it's way better than I think my cooking skills should be able to deliver. But somehow Blue Apron magic works and makes me look a lot better than I am as a chef. So check them out. Just try them, see if it's to your taste. Uh, Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week. Customers can pick either two, three, or four based on what best fits your schedule. Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listener to a $30 off on your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So kickstart your new year with Blue Apron and check them out. Again, $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Big thank you to my two other regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. I'm seconds away from wrapping up these episodes and going online to place an order with Onnit. 
I get some of their stuff pretty much every month. Uh, really like it. Uh, the, the whole range. And it's hard, it's always hard to talk about only because they make so much good stuff that they don't fit in just one simple genre. Uh, they are famous for their supplements. Lots of good stuff there. Famous for their workout gear. Uh, they are now doing more and more clothing, special food, and all sorts of other stuff. So check them out. Uh, you can go to onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. And a big thank you to Datsusara. Datsusara produces high-quality hemp gear, particularly, you know, they focus on textiles. So they apply to computer bags, backpacks, uh, martial art geese for people who like jiu-jitsu, um, wallet, hoodies, harnesses for dogs, you know, just about all sort of things that can be made with hemp, they do it. You know, hemp kind of got a bad reputation because you see, in many cases, hemp gear looks poorly made in some basement from somebody. This is not the case. This is really high-quality stuff. Uh, you look at their design, you look at the manufacturer, these things last a really long time. They have amazing customer service. So check them out at dsgear.com. If you didn't catch any of these websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. Also, quick shout out. I forgot to mention Never Tap Gear. They sent me some great knee braces, which are really ideal for anybody who's active in sports or any kind of physical activity. Knee braces are great to give your knees at least some degree of protection you know nobody's gonna protect you if you do horrible things to your lower limbs but it's some protection goes a long way it's still better than no protection so check them out at nevertapgear.com i uh, really like their stuff i'm beginning to use it on a regular basis having said all this i will now leave you with uh, a tiny bit of a tease i guess regarding the next episode this, by the way, is on a prayer, because I'm assuming that we are going to come through with this episode. I may have to change plans and switch around. But if things work out, the next episode is going to be a collaboration. I'm going to run probably a little more than half of the episode, where I will tell one tale. And then Daryl Cooper from the Martyr Made podcast is going to take you through another tale related and by the time we're done with all of that, it's probably going to be a long episode already. So then in the second part of that series, we're going to sit down to talk about, really it's going to be a meditation about good and evil in history, the dark and light aspects of the human mind. It's really, it's really going to be episodes in some way about psychology and history. That's at least the second half. The first half will be a little more factual. But I know lots of you have listened to the Martyr Made podcast, which is absolutely excellent. If you haven't done so already, check Daryl's workout. But in the next episode, you know, unlike other episodes where I've cooperated with people and they're really more dialogues, they are more like interviews, like, for example, when I had Dan Carlin on or Mike Duncan or, you know, recently we did one on Game of Thrones with Aziz, which was, those are more dialogues. This one is, I'm doing my part, he's doing his part. You're going to be exposed to two different styles of approaching a similar subject. And hopefully it spicing up for you. Hopefully it's something that you guys are going to dig. Uh, but just to 
here is my tease about it. I received a text from Daryl a few days ago saying, how hard am I allowed to go on this? Because this is getting really heavy and really dark. And so I texted him back with some of the lyrics from uh, The Sound of Silence and I texted him back like, hello darkness, my old friend. Because, you know, yeah, it's going to be a pretty intense episode, let's put it that way. I'll leave it at that. So having said all this, I wish you guys a wonderful day. <laughs>